you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alric Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is coming out to the masses in 2022. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features and currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome Vietnamese writer, director Lee Van Kiet on the show to talk about his latest film, The Requin, which is his first English-speaking film after spending a decade making films in Vietnam. Kiet talks about how he translated The Requin from being a Vietnamese film into an English film and outlines how he went from graduating film school in L.A. to becoming one of the top film directors in Vietnam. I don't know if he'd like me saying that, but that seems to be very clear that he is. After that, Liz and I discuss a hot new article by Eric Cohn from IndieWire about if Sundance darling directors should be making the leap straight to Marvel movies. And then Liz has a question to ask me. But before all that, Liz, how are you doing? Oh, (laughs) because we had the pre-chat. Where I've got out all the things that were bothering me. Now I'm trying to figure out what's bothering me. I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm frustrated by distributors right now. I'm doing sales and I had a distributor. Here, I'll, I'll set it up and you'll see what you think. I have a filmmaker. We're going to call her Susie. Susie's friend works with a certain distributor. And she emailed her distributor, Susie's friend, and said, will you take a look at Susie's movie? And the distributor's like, absolutely, I will screen it. So then me, Susie's rep, emailed the distributor and they said, our slate is full. No, thank you. Wouldn't even watch (laughs) the movie. So I'm just very cranky and I don't like this distributor and I just think people are two-faced. That's how I feel. How are you? Wow, that's crazy. So they basically just said they would, but then they were like, no, we can't. I have it in writing. They forwarded, like, I have like a thread where they're like, oh, of course, I'll check out this creator. Can't wait to see it. Like, just bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> That's so funny. And do you think that reason why they're not taking a look at it is because of the genre that it is or because there's no actors or, or no. famous people? Yeah, okay, sure. They should have been upfront with the contact person who pitched the film in the first place because the film that I'm repping does not have all rights available. It has a broadcast deal already and is uh, an impact documentary. It's a wonderful movie with a very good pedigree. But I've run mm. into this before where documentaries get have a little bit of bias against them in distribution. But this distributor should not be relaying any sort of enthusiasm and then turning around and shutting the door. So I'm yeah. cranky because it just is reflective of how shitty and two-faced this system is. Yeah, that's not cool. Yeah. How am I doing? I'm doing okay. I have lots of things happening right now this morning right. that like... I don't know if it's good. It was like, you know, I had a clear plan. I was like, okay, I have to do this one thing for my job before I start the day and then everything will be smooth sailing. And then, you know, I basically got a bunch of emails from my client, like with new stuff and asking for other stuff. And my daughter is staring at me as she walks by and she just gave me the biggest smile in the world. So yes, my daughter's distracting me in the best way possible too. And then, yeah, so everything got blown up just with like, other things I had to take care of instead of the thing I planned to do this morning, you know, which I don't know if, if you're like that, like you have a plan yes. and you're like, yeah. oh, this is great. I have like this 30, 40 minutes to like do this thing that I'm supposed to do. And then I have my meeting and this other meeting. And then I have this thing with you, the podcast recording and everything's all smooth. And then it was like, I had to take, take that 30, 40 minutes dealing with my client and then didn't get to do the task I was supposed to do. I've got like nine personal emails 
about the alternate and other things and like my my filled m and e track is done but Yay. then there was like other things that needed to happen that from the qc artist or the qc company that they like were asking for so i asked the the person doing the m and e track to do that but then my post sound supervisor is like oh she shouldn't be doing those things like i'm going to take care of those or not even that i'm going to take care of those but like oh we shouldn't take care of the things the qc house is asking for we need to push back on the QC house and say that, oh, no, God. we disagree with you. And I'm like, but, 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 but I think she already did them. Can we just use the work that she did? He's like, well, I, I don't want them messing with my, and so it's all these things. This is like drama with my movie, you know? And then I talked to a really wonderful set of filmmakers who are embarking on their first feature film. And so that was like a, a, the call I had before this call. And that was great. But it's like, you know, and all this time doing all these things, like, you know, my emails are, <laughs> piling up my slack is piling up and i'm just like wow i wish i had more time in the day to do things but luckily this is my last meeting for the day so when we're done with this oh. then i can focus with all the stuff that i have to do so that's how i'm amazing. doing <laughs> I, I feel like i don't know if this is how your to-do list works but my to-do list every day there's always like three or four things i really 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 don't want to do but if i do them i will feel better like i will mm. feel lighter it sounds like your morning item was maybe one of those things that would have like transformed your whole day if you got it done, you know? It was more like a responsibility that like I was supposed to do yesterday. <laughs> well, yes, all of these things were supposed and, and, to do. <laughs> and it was like, oh, well, I'll take care of it right in the morning and it'll right. be perfect. And, you know, my team that, that I'm working with on my, my work project, like they're fine. Like they're, they've got things to do. It's all moving swiftly, but it's like, you know, we've gotten other things thrown at us this morning from our client too, that it's like adding up. And then on, on all top of all of this, I'm supposed to go to a drive-in screening of my movie in San right. Jose tonight. Right. That's happening with, in conjunction with Maria Maya. She's got a, a short film that she's producing. She's using my movie a, as the backdrop in the scene at a, at a drive-in for her short film. And then like the people who are coming are supposed to like be the cars in the background to fill in as extras and. I wanted to come and like take a photo of the, the movie on the big screen at the drive-in and all this stuff. But it's like quickly becoming very clear that I'm not going to have time to make that an hour and a half drive from my house in Vallejo to San Jose to watch the movie because I have to deliver this video for my client by five. Someone else that. can take that picture. You don't have to yeah. drive 90 minutes to take a picture. I think I will ask someone on, on, the, on the social medias to do it for me because I know there's some people who are going, so... Yeah, we'll see. But anyways, it's just like my whole day's been exploded and it's not even noon yet. So that's how but I'm feeling But this is my today. theory about Tuesdays. I brought this up before. <laughs> By Tuesday, and I think it's like 8 p.m. Maybe it's not. Let's give people leeway. 9 or 10 p.m. on Tuesday, you will feel like a better person. You will get <laughs> enough done where you feel like the rest of the week is going to be fine. There's like this weird confidence game that Tuesday plays with you and you're going to cheat. You're going to win. You're going to win the battle of Tuesday. So, Ulrich, you're going to be okay. But yes, that is very frustrating. Well, one thing that we've been doing lately, or I've been doing lately, is we're, we've been doing videos on our Patreon page, like little private videos for people, Pe not just for people, for our special, special patrons. You know, they're the only ones who get to see these videos. So, I think I'll do a video on, on how my, my Tuesday is going around <laughs> three or four o'clock today and to, to follow up on this to be like, okay, well, this is not going to make much sense if you watch it now when I'm posting it on Tuesday, you know, the 25th. But when you hear the next week's episode, this will all make perfect sense. It'll all tie together. 
I but think I'll you should say, post at 8 p.m. and say uh, you won the battle against Tuesday is what I want. Okay. I think that's the real core of this update. Yeah. To, to be like, okay, did I win the battle or did I lose the battle? Yeah. 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 Well, anyways, so if you want to watch this video that we're talking about, don't forget to support us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Thanks again to everyone who was on the AMA a couple weeks ago. That was so cool. We're going to be doing more of these things, I, I swear. But we've been doing these bonus videos. I've done two so far. I find that I have more, like an easier time making a video of me talking, just talking, than I do writing a tweet. I can't tweet. I can't do it. Or Facebook posts. Like I used to be able to do Facebook posts. I can't do them anymore. I just, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like I just, I don't have the ability in me, but like I can make a video and post it to YouTube and pop it up on Patreon. No problem. So. I'll be doing more of that. Maybe Liz will do one or two. Maybe if you're lucky. It's on my list. I just wrote it down on my today's to-do list. We'll see if I win the battle <laughs> against Tuesday. Yeah, I would love to. I, I want to see what, what Liz talks about in her video to like contrast what I talk about in my video. I think it'll be very interesting to see <laughs> Liz in her element versus me in my own element. It'd be very interesting. You should also make sure to check out Jambox.io. They're a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues, which I can attest to because I'm using them on my, my trailer recut that I'm doing right now, and they do have quite a few cinematic cues to choose from. They offer a customized plans to fit your needs, and they focus on working with composers on an exclusive basis, so you won't hear all these traps popping up on all other platforms, which is pretty cool. You can use our code MMIH when signing up to get a 20% discount on your subscription. But without any more blither-brather or mess-ups or mistakes or whatever, here is our chat, my chat, with Lee Van Kiet. So with me today is Lee Van Kiet, the director of The Requen. Thank you so much for being here today. Just give us the elevator pitch for the movie. Tell us what it's about. The Requen is about a couple who have marital problems who go on a vacation and they meet the impossible, which is nature. And they have to rekindle their love and look to each other to survive this massive, unfortunate situation, which is, it gets worse and worse for them. And they will find it in themselves to survive. And who, who will survive? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and how many days did you shoot the film? We shot it. Actual shooting days, I believe it was 21 days. Yeah. 21, 23, I believe. Yes. It was in and around that time. Yeah. And if you can say, like, what was the rough budget of the film? Rough, I, I can't say. I don't know specifically. Can you give us like a rough, like, is it like 10 million, 20 million? No, it's, it's below 10. It's below 10, for sure. Okay, yeah. cool. Awesome. <laughs> and it'd probably and, be uh, in, the, in the middle of, you know, really low to, you know, under 10. And then how did you get attached to the project? It started with my producing partner that worked the festival circuit and in sales and distribution sales in Vietnam. And he brought my script to be read in the, in the, circ in the markets and Filmbridge and also the, in the really early stages, Endeavor content had interest in it. But eventually Filmbridge took it over and started the financing process. It, it, so it came from the, uh, the film markets. And then how did you come up with the idea for the movie? At the time, there were a lot of talk about how great shark movies can be and how it sells and all that chatter. 
but it wasn't, it wasn't coming from me. Obviously it was coming from a lot of the salespeople and everyone just wanted a, a shock movie basically. But I kind of did it as a challenge. Like how, how can I write a shark movie that can sell, but I wouldn't be selling out as making a Sharknado or something that is, <laughs> that is uh, ridiculously like just not with any substance, right? I mean, I, n- n- not hitting on Sharknado because it, it's already done really well and it's got its own value to its fans. But for me, I just wanted to do something very important and very special too, uh, cloaked in a shark genre. And so I, I sat and wrote it and it just, everything came as instinctual as I could as because I just didn't want to overthink it as a shark genre. And so it just became this journey rather than a, a gimmick, you know, a shark gimmick of, uh, but then but you do get the shark flavor and, and also the shark genre towards the part of the film that deserves it. And so I, it's still considered a shark movie. Did you like write this on spec? Just kind of someone was like, oh, you know, you should write a shark movie. They sell well. Or did you actually get hired to write the script? It was on spec. Yes. That's the scenario. It was, uh, I wasn't putting all of my faith and career in this one script, right? I, I still had other things I was doing in Vietnam and, and, and there were other projects I was getting ready to do, but it, it was more of a spec situation and it was really up to me whether it was going to go anywhere. Nice. And then how long did you spend working on the film from like writing the script to like the movie coming out today? From coming out today. Wow. That, wow. I'm backtracking from memory lane here. It might've been a good four to five years from now, I believe. I think it was five years ago that we, we just had a conversation of it being Actually, it, it started out as an actually a Vietnamese movie, an Asian movie. The characters were Asian and it was a local movie. But talking to financiers and talking to people who are interested in it, they, they actually wanted it as an English movie. And so I took a, a chance and, and converted to a Western movie, basically, and changed the characters and converted to what it is today. And then compared to all the other projects you've done, how difficult was this one? Wow. I mean, every, every project has its own story, right? And its own difficulties. But this one wasn't any different. It was challenging. In, we, we had to shoot it in the middle of COVID because it was finance. It was a go November of, 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 of the of prior COVID year. In around that time, it was already finance. It was a go. And Alicia was attached. And so everything looked great. And the COVID hit. And so it was delayed further and further. And then it, it came to a point where it's either we're going to make it or nobody's going to make this movie, right? And so everyone just came together with all the limitations with COVID and budget had to go up, obviously, because of COVID. And nobody was prepared for that. We had to shoot it in places where we had to compromise a bit, you know, in, in terms of traveling, because we initially wanted to shoot in a proper ocean and everything that was maybe in Mexico. Uh, but that obviously during COVID, you, nobody could have traveled. And so, yeah, it was all the things that are uh, part of a movie being difficult. This was it. <laughs> you know, there was weather problems. The crew, we couldn't have a massive amount of crew. One was that it was away from Hollywood, obviously. So we, our local crew really came from Atlanta and it, that was limited. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I think we went through something very difficult. But it was everybody was having a great time making it. Everybody was a pro, and we were just you know like warriors during that time because it was it was under the gun. 
because the weather the weather was very uncompromisable. And where did you end up shooting the film? We shot it in Florida. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and we predicted. I mean, no one can predict the weather, right? But we anticipated it being a lot nicer during that time of the year, which was in October, I believe, early October, late September. But it it was we tried to time it better, but we had hurricane problems. We had very violent rain and wind. The the, the wind was the worst for us because we couldn't. We weren't able to you know hold up a green screen or certain scenes. Wow. And did you shoot actually like in the, the ocean uh, off of Florida or did you do most of it in, in tanks? Like how did you do all the, the water scenes? We did a, a, about a week in the sound stage, which was, I forgot the town, but it was nearby in Orlando. But we did just shoot in the sound stage with, with some water, but it was mainly, it wasn't the actual body of water. It was, it was things that we were splashing around and throwing water and all that. And we, when we went to the open ocean scenes, we were shooting in, at the Universal Studio lot, uh, the park, the water park. Oh, nice. With the wave machine. Oh. So we, <laughs> we were, <laughs> it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. It, that was one of our difficulties too, because something like that, is, it sounds great and exciting, but once you actually get your hands in it, it's uncontrollable. <laughs> you know, it's not, it doesn't mold to your needs. But you know, it felt it felt real. It felt it felt like the real open ocean. And then we did a, I think a week in the in the a real pool outside in the open, so that we can have that space. Was the park open when you shot, or were they were they closed? No, I don't believe it was open. Not our section. Like it were it was open in certain areas, but it wasn't it wasn't as. I think that's the reason why they, we were able to use it because it was a uh, low capacity, or certain sections were closed. Just a small story. Like I, I worked on one, uh, two days in Universal Studios in Los Angeles, and mm. they don't close the park when you shoot there at all. Mm. Even like, and they do their tours and everything. So like, we had to like shoot around the tours happening, mm. which was like oh. a nightmare. And apparently, every filmmaker has to deal with that. They don't shut that down for anybody because it just makes so much more money. Yeah, we were. I think we were lucky because they. I, I don't think they wanted to shut down, but I, I think during that time it was. Very few people traveling. Right, yeah, because of COVID and everything. So, you just got lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I'm, I'm curious. I have so many questions, but I'm just going to just, just, just to stay on the same film. Mm-hmm. What was the experience like translating the the film from, you know, being a, a Vietnam, Vietnam movie to a Hollywood movie? Was that challenging? And, like, what did that entail? Was it, like, literally just changing the language? Or was there other elements that you had to change? The, the action part and, and obviously the, the plot twist and, and, and the, the second act, it, it didn't change much because both script had a version of them being lost in the ocean and having shark attacks. So that, was, that stayed the same. The tricky part was changing the culture of the couple and, and the nuance of where they come from, their backstory. That took me a lot of work because I just had to go to a different place to write something like that because it wasn't a, in, in, in the local version, it was a young, very young couple who was just starting their life and they have these family obligations and they have their mother and, and their father being very against the marriage and but they married anyway and they kind of married in secret or in, in being a rebel, you know, against their parents. And then they just went out to uh, a vacation. But when I changed it to an American version, I had to change it completely. It became a middle-aged couple. 
it became a couple who've been married for a while and is beginning to have marital problems and they couldn't get over their loss and their grief and they're in the middle of grief and and they're going into this trip for healing so that that was a big difference right yeah so just to like kind of go back in time a little bit like you've been making films for a long time like this is like your eighth or ninth feature or something like that right I, I don't know the exact number, but yeah, you, you might be close. It might be maybe seven. Six. Counting the one I'm doing now, it might be, yeah, around eight. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I, I was doing a little research on you. It looked like you went to school in, in UCLA, you know, and then you made a movie in Los Angeles, like your first feature. And then from there, you, like, went back, you know, to Vietnam, and you that's where your career's been for the majority of the time since then. So, just talk about that a little bit, like, what it was like making your first feature in, in Hollywood and like why you decided to to move to Vietnam? My first film was kind of like my, they call it the thesis, my thesis film for a graduate program. I, I decided to just make a feature film because in a, in a graduate program, you, you're limited, right? You can only make a short movie. I, I went to the UCLA undergrad and got an award there for my short movie. And so I, I felt like I, I, I've gone to that program and process. And then when I was in my grad program, I felt I, I was, I wanted to do more, you know, I wanted to explore different th- skills and, and a little bit, bit, be a little bit out there in the world. And so I decided to do a feature film and in conjunction with my studies, but it was self-finance. It was self everything. I mean, it's, it's your classic, like beg, borrow, steal kind of <laughs> gorilla because it was a personal story for me. It was about the early nineties uh, as an immigrant growing up in Orange County and in an urban area, that there was this explosion of gang violence and urban kind of teenage angst. And so it was during the time of the riots and all that stuff happening in, in our Southern California landscape. Obviously, it was, I was young and I was, I was, it was my first time ever doing a feature. So it, it, it stayed within the community. This was 2004 or so. And you know, the landscape in Hollywood now is, is very different, right? There's a lot of inclusion and diversity and openness. But even in 2004, it was virtually none. I, I, I didn't really have the opportunities to, to come out there and to tell my story. Or, or if, I, if I had been more aggressive, I, I'm not sure. But I just didn't find it that easy for, for even a, from somebody who had film school background to even get in the door. So I just kind of made it my own. And because of that movie, there were a lot of investors from Vietnam and, and there were a lot of people who were very interested in Vietnam as the next growth in, in media. And they saw my film in festivals and they reached out to me and they invited me over to Vietnam to make movies. And, you know, there wasn't really anything going for me in, in the States. So I just decided to, around 2010 or so, go to Vietnam and, and start making films. And did you have like any special connection in Vietnam that allowed that to happen? Or was it literally like they just saw this film, you know, on the festival circuit and they were like, mm-hmm. they just approached you and said, Hey, you look like a great filmmaker. Let's go do some mm-hmm. stuff. Yes, it was, it was a part of that. And, but also th- there was a group of us and they're still working right now. And we came up together in Vietnam. And now you will see everybody, the, the directors and filmmakers that, that are prominent right now in Vietnam, they, we all come from the same area, actually, in Southern California. And oh, really? <laughs> so I, yeah, there's about three or four of us. And they're the leaders in the industry right now in Vietnam. You know, I was very proud to be part of that class. And so we had each other, but we were more or less on our own anyway. But because we had the skills coming from the States and investors were more 
warm to us and uh, wanting to talk to us and how how we can contribute to the industry out there and how it can grow. And since then, it's it was it's growing exponentially, and it was it became a prominent industry within the past few years now. And it's just because Vietnam is is, is in the market now. So talk about like your first feature in Vietnam. Like, what was that experience like? Did they did you have like a nice big budget? Like, did you have to fight to get like, you know, just a little bit mm-hmm. of money to make the movie? And like, what, what kind of movie was it? Like, we'll talk about yeah. all that stuff. The first few projects I had, in, um, I mean, there were, there were a lot of interest and there were a lot of like, let's go, let's go. So things were moving very fast, but it's like the Wild West when it started. It's trying to make things as independent and as cost efficient as possible, but still have an upside of investment. And so that, because theaters wasn't, a big thing back then, 10 years ago. It was slowly coming in. It's when you start having CJ and CGV and Latte coming in and owning all the theaters now, uh, multiplexes, that budgets were going up. But back then, the budgets were very small. You had to be very resourceful, but yet you're faced with a film industry that more or less didn't really exist. It was mainly people from TV or people who kind of learned on the job. And so there wasn't any established talent. And so you, you, you had to really be that filmmaker that can do everything. So that was one of the difficulties. But no, no I, I would not say that the budgets were large back, uh, back then at all, even in local standards, because there was a lot of risk that people didn't understand. They were willing to try, but they, wouldn't, they, they didn't have anything in context to, to apply their method or, or their investment approach. So they were just kind of playing it by ear. And for example, a movie could be done, and this was 10 years ago, obviously, but it could be done for 200000 back then, but it, could, it made a million dollars in the box office. And so that encouraged everybody right, immediately. And so the next budget would be 400000 and then it would make, even if it made back its money, people, then people started to get really excited. And only recently, within a few years from today, our budget's in around a million so they're, they're kind of, the, the big movies right now are averaging a million dollars for budget. And can you just paint a picture of the film industry in Vietnam? Like kind of, you know, when you got started versus now, like, was it just like a bunch of, you know, Hollywood movies that were being played there? And like, were there mm-hmm. theaters? Like, were there local movies being made? Or was it sort of just like, not really like very few and far between? And then, you know, you're part of this generation of filmmakers that are like, okay, we're actually going to make movies in Vietnam, like, you know, in our own language not just Hollywood stuff. Right, right. Yes. When I, so when I started, there wasn't a lot of movie theaters. It was still a, a privileged thing to do is to go to a theater because mm. it was only in the main city, which is Ho Chi Minh, Saigon, or Hanoi, and the big cities in, in the resort areas. So there wasn't multiplexes at all 10 years ago. I shouldn't say 10 years ago. It's about maybe 2008 or 2009. There was very few. And so when we were making films, it kind of reflected that we couldn't really go for it in, in, in a big scale. So we had to we had to challenge ourselves also to work in limitations. But slowly, the 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 market became much better when the when there were more movies being made because the diaspora in Vietnam is very young. I, mean, I think Vietnam is is known to be the, one of the youngest countries in the world, meaning that there's just not a lot of old people. So the the appetite is very strong and. As people were testing the multiplexes, it, it grew exponentially because you see kids who are in the countryside who only go to movies as their pastime. And it became 
a habit where they're not just watching one movie a month or they're actually watching two to three movies a week. And it, it, because that's, that's something that I know Western cultures took for granted, you know, kind of think it's a norm, but in these parts of the country, they, it's not, they never grew up with it. And so they were, they were very excited to be part of that wave. The movie industry right now is starting to get very commercialized now before it was mainly just things that, are from television that they're used to. And if you're going to do a local movie, then you, you have to abide by really the techniques and also the style of what they're used to during that time, which is mainly the sitcoms and the TV movies. But the young people were very into the Hollywood movies. The, the appetite for Hollywood movies kind of over, overstepped the uh, local movies even quicker because the, the kids were very young. The average age that went to movies were 13, 14 to 16. And so as we, as filmmakers like me, came in there with a more of a Western structure and a Hollywood structure, but then our movies obviously were Vietnamese and spoke the language, the local language, then they warmed up to that. It was something that they needed to have a, a better experience. And so that's where you are right now is that movies that are, tend to be very successful, they're the ones that are made more in the Hollywood style and, and, and that kind of budget too. Yeah. And what does it look like now? Like are, you know, the Marvel movies, like the big budget, budget Hollywood movies, are they still like the most popular things at the box office in Vietnam or like are the local movies kind of mm-hmm. taking more of those eyeballs away from the Hollywood? Uh, so surprisingly, it depends. Marvel does fairly well. Fast Furious does fairly well, but things that are very specifically American culture, like Star Wars, it's not, very popular in Vietnam. Mm. So you, you like, for example, they would, people went out in droves watching Spider-Man, the, the recent Spider-Man. But if Star Wars were to come out, it, it, you wouldn't see anybody in the theaters. So that, mm. there's a big difference there. However, the, the film that has been breaking box office numbers consistently are local films, actually, even above Hollywood movies. The, the film I did, Fury, that broke the box office at that time. And the latest one broke that record too. And it was also a local movie. Wow. Nice. So talk about Fury. Cause I, I know I was just looking and it got like tons of awards, tons of positive reviews yeah. all over the world, you know, not just in Vietnam. So can you just talk about like what, what that movie was like mm-hmm. to make it. And like, you know, was it like a big jump from your other budgets, mm-hmm. you know, to do that film and, you know, and then talk about like what your, your filmmaking career has been like since that movie has come out. Great, thanks. Yes. Uh, so Fury came about when I, I my, one of my first movies was a horror movie in Vietnam. And I, I worked with Veronica No, which is, she's a famous star in Vietnam. And she's just, she also has a few parts in Hollywood that you might be familiar with. But it was during that time, 2017 or so, that her and I just, needed to make a movie together since we, we haven't worked with each other for about five years or so. And so she really wanted it to be one of her last real action movies because she's, she feels she hasn't really gotten one in <laughs> basically since uh, her last one. And we just really dug our feet and, and, and roll up our sleeves and just really got into what kind of movie we wanted to make and uh, where the market is going in Vietnam. And we really, target the local taste as much as we could. But obviously where she comes from in, in her action world and where I come in and in, in my LA filmmaking, I 
we we knew that we we needed that kind of flavor of of a Hollywood structure of, of a proper Western style movie, but then also have the heart and the soul of of the local people. So we we took we took care of that very carefully. It wasn't really a, a big budget for for what we were shooting for. I mean, we were going for the biggest movie in Vietnam, basically. But obviously, we were limited to whatever the investors were comfortable for. And so it was, I, I believe, it was a little bit over a million for for what we did it for. And it hit a nerve, I think, because it was one of the very few movies during that time that came out with that style and that rhythm and kind of that style of storytelling. And the audience really gravitated to it. And there was a huge amount of positivity towards it being kind of like a prideful film for us to reach globally so far and a very entertaining piece that everybody can, can watch. And, and since then, I, it's been great for me. I, I made another horror movie for Endeavor. And I think during that time, The Requiem came into the picture because also a lot of the investors that are in The Requiem, they saw Fury. And I'm, I'm doing The Princess now for Disney and Hulu currently. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's awesome. Another action movie. And so, yeah, that's been great. It's been, it's been a whirlwind for me, but it just shows that we, we didn't try to go everywhere with that movie. We didn't try to satisfy everybody's taste, but we, we really wanted to impress our people, you know, the locals first. And then in turn, you know, everybody in the world saw us for what we did and really appreciated the culture that was in there. So is The Princess, is that going to be an English-speaking movie as well? Or? Well, yeah, The Princess, is, it's a 20th century movie. Disney and 20th Century Fox. It's it stars Joey King. Yes, it is a nice. It's an American movie. <laughs> awesome. So, do you feel like like the Fury kind of opened doors for you to like get to like English speaking movies? And was that ever something that you were like going for? Is it just sort of like a happy thing that an accident that happened? Like, have you been trying to get back to Hollywood this whole time? Like, from you know working in Vietnam, or are you just sort of like open to whatever and you just take what comes? I was very open to, to coming to Hollywood basically, but you, but I, I knew well enough that it, it's just, not, it wasn't in my control. Right. I just don't, I, I wasn't knocking on their door because one, I was busy and I was trying to know my own craft and voice and working in Vietnam and everything. So I, I knew it was going to come either way. If I, if I made that one good movie and, and I kind of felt it after we finished theory and we had such great reaction that, there was going to be something, but I never really forced it and, and looked for it. But they eventually came to me and called me and, and, and it was much more pleasant of experience than I ever thought <laughs> that it would be because I just didn't have it in my thinking that I would be forcing it, you know? And then so that I guess the way I approached it was, it was more Zen-like. <laughs> what were you like thinking that it was going to, like, how would you imagine it being unpleasant? Like, did you think it was going to be like, like harder to make a movie? You know, in Hollywood, or what were you anticipating? I think what made me more nervous about that thought was was the the selling part of it, the, the selling myself part of it. That that's where I'm. That world to me is is very difficult. I, I'm a lot better at it now, obviously, because I now I'm I'm starting to know agents and managers and all that stuff. But uh, and the pitching game, but it's because in Vietnam, you you really it's a different thing. You know, you're you're making a movie as a part of you contributing to the country, you know, to, to the 
to something big, like the uh, like growth, right? And Hollywood's different. Hollywood's not really, you're not really doing much for uh, other than the box office sales or growing a, a big conglomerate. But there's a sense of kind of family in, in, in Vietnam filmmaking. You're there and you see your crew member and everybody who's been working for you and with you too. And you have an emotional attachment to that. And you want to make movies for them and with them because it's part of their livelihood too. And it's so important to, to that industry and, 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 the, and the people that I work with every day that that never pulls me away, you know, but as far as Hollywood is, Hollywood is very enticing too. Everybody wants to be there and everybody wants to make films there, obviously. But I feel that if it's not part of my personality at a certain project, then it's going to be very hard for me to kind of give up what I have in Vietnam, which is making films of the heart, you know, rather than it's a, it's a very business transaction in, in America. What, what has it been like? Because I'm sure you can't say what the budget is on The Princess, but I'm imagining it's a lot greater than what you've been having on your yeah. previous film. So what has that transition been like? Has it just been like a lot easier to work with a bigger budget? Or are there other challenges that you weren't expecting that you come across mm-hmm. when, you know, leveling up like that? Well, I... I was lucky to have the experience that I did in Vietnam because I learned that it was, it's, it's less about control and it's more about you as a, a storyteller and, and down to the most basic is, is writing. And that's really where my strength is. And it's less about showing your control over everything with the camera or the talent or, or the, the way it has to be done or, so when I spoke to Hollywood about The Princess, I, it, was, it was exactly how I would have imagined a, a smooth situation would be is, is because I, I don't have to do everything. <laughs> there, <there's laughs> and th- that was a relief. Uh, I, well, I kind of expected it uh, to be like that, but it, 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 you know, I reveled in it because everybody's on top of the game. Everybody comes to the table with their best ideas and... Uh, their greatest effort and you are just kind of guiding the, the, the vision of the movie that in the beginning you're already telling the studio and the producers of where i'm going for and what i'm going to do and you're never going to get to the next step of even working with any crew member if you don't have that down or if you're trusted with that vision and so i think that's a great way to work is that you you get that down first you know you get you get that first step in as far as what your vision is and what you want to do and get everybody's trust. And then pretty much after that, you're, you have, you're surrounded by the best people possible to get that across, that vision across. And really, you're just letting them know everything from what the color is, you know, what the, this princess needs to look like. And that should already be in your mind and in your head prior to you even being on set. And so I find that very rewarding because I've, I've, I've been doing it. And so shifting it from a bigger budget and a bigger scale, I pleasantly surprised that I don't have to do everything myself. And that's really what the, the, the advantage is. So I noticed that you're not credited as a writer on The Princess. Like, and I know that you've written a lot of your other or almost all your other stuff. So mm-hmm. was that a challenge to come into a, a project where you weren't, you know, actually writing, especially since you said that was like one of your strong suits? Yes. I think what I meant about writing too is you're expected to develop the script, right? And even uh, from a writer and you, you come in and you, you're changing the tone and, and you're commenting on the scenes and you're converting the scenes to, to a certain way. 
that's a lot of writing. You know, it's a lot of back and forth and it's a lot of communication. The script is not my original piece or anything like that. But uh, I, I found myself during the prep or, and then during the development part of it with the studio, it's, there was a lot of writing involved. It's not necessarily an actual IP credit, but that part of directing is, is very real. You know, you really have, you do have to write out what you want in a movie and what you're going for. And so that's what I mean by, you know, that's my, one of my strengths. Right, right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a good point. It's like, even if you're just giving notes on, to a writer or you're like, you know, prepping for the movie, like there's an insane amount of writing that goes into all that stuff that you never sure. get credit for as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And then can you talk about like getting that job? Like, cause you said that like it kind of came to you after you had six, your other successes with your other films, mm-hmm. but do you still have to like do a pitch process and like, was there a chance that you wouldn't get it? Like, was there a lot of work that you had to like do to like secure the job or was it more like, no, they just love your work and they're like, no, you're ready. Let's, let's go. I got a call out of the blue and there was just, that was just the first introduction. And yeah, they, they sent me the script and want to know my thoughts, obviously. And what, what kind of movie would I be doing if it's the script? And so there was, a, there's a lot of that going on in the beginning after the initial call. And so you're, you're going to write out what you're, what you mean. And there, the, the meeting room starts to get fuller, you know, of other executives. <laughs> and <laughs> at first it starts with the producer that really is interested in talking to you. And then it became the executive and more executives and creative executives. And the room starts to get bigger. And so you just have to grow with that room as far as your communication and your vision. And I, I did that. I did that for a good two months, I believe. But during that two months, I, I was never told clearly that, I got the job. Uh, I just had to, yeah, it, it wasn't anything like that. It was, it was more like, okay, we, we're, we're in this step. So let's, let's go to the next step. Let's go to the next step. And it became working with the script and became developing it and, and talking and back and forth and making it better. And until, until everybody feels that it's a, they're in a safe place, then I felt like I got the answer, you know, and, and then it became official. And what kind of materials did you provide and create during this time? Like, did you do a treatment? Did you do like, like a lookbook or mm-hmm. like a ripomatic? Like what kind of stuff were you showing, you know, people mm-hmm. at these different meetings? In, in the beginning, it was basically a treatment of what your vision of the movie is, is going to be. And it could be any, it's, it's, there's no real format for it. It's all your community, how you communicate. So it could be in the writing. And then what I, what I did I, for a pitch meeting, and this is usually what a studio exec would, would expect it to, to be to even go to the next step with you is that you, you pitch your, your visuals and accompanying it with what you wrote out as far as the vision of the movie. And so you, I complemented it with a, you know, a visual presentation. It could be anything. It could be clips from movies or it could be stills that is put together in, you know, in accordance to your way of illustrating the movie, you know, telling the movie from A to Z, you know, what's, what's the first act like? What's the third or what's the second, what's the third and where it's going to go and how is it going to be trimmed down or, or converted into, you know, your vision. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that happening and you never know if you're doing it right or not. It's, it's a, there, cause there's just no right way to do it. If, if I can say that there's just, if you feel that you've, communicate the movie in such a way that they're enticed enough and they get it enough that they would move forward with you, then, then you're in a good, good place. 
So after this project, you know, you've got this, it's coming out this year, you know, very exciting. Are you thinking that you're going to continue to make movies in Vietnam? Or are you kind of eyeing to move to Los Angeles and, you know, kind of make that your, you know, where you make your movies going forward? Or is it kind of like, oh, I want to do both? I mean, Vietnam is, was such a s- special place for me for so long. And I'm from, I'm actually, I was born there actually. And coming back to my home, in my roots and, and knowing the people for so long and bonding with them, I, I can never give that up. And there's just so much to do in Vietnam. There's so many stories to tell. The growth is great. The world wants to know what's going on, right, in Vietnam. And, I, and that excites me. And, and the people are, they have so much to tell. And that, that will never leave me. So there, I'm, I'm always going to find ways to do something very creative in Vietnam to help with the industry and also to get more people aware of, of where we are now, perspective to our very famous but dark history and sad history and, and where we are, what, what have we been doing for the past 40 years and where we are now and where we're going to go. And so that interests me a lot. And Hollywood, I, and I think I've said this before is like, uh, to, to a lot of my colleagues in Vietnam, is that Hollywood is always going to be there. It's been going on for 200 years or so. And they're not going anywhere and they're they're just going to they're yeah they're they're there but vietnam where we're at right now is special and it's changing every day and it's getting more special every day and, and that's something to to always be a part of oh, that's awesome man uh, this feels like a really great place to to move on to our final six mm-hmm. questions so i was going to dive right in here what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now does that count as short film or an actual Yeah, whatever. Film? Yeah, it could be short film, could be um, okay. feature, whatever, however you want to answer it. The, fir- the very first one I did is a short film at my film school, and it was, it, it won an award, the Jack Nicholson Award. It was uh, the first time I've ever received money for, for uh, a piece of art that I did, and I was shocked. <laughs> but looking back at it now, it was, it was shot on Super 16, and I still feel that intention wise, it, it, it's, still very special to me because it was a short scene about a little boy who eats at uh, who eats lunch uh, on a regular normal afternoon but he's hearing these heightened sounds of fear because his father is this very the way he cooks is very violent and mm-hmm. he just sees he sees food as as a burden uh, rather than as something that is is, is a uh, part of a human pastime or need but i i still feel the message of the film is great but as far as the technical part of it is, is a little bit, a little bit hard to see because we, we did everything analog. I wasn't part of that digital generation, but I, I feel that the things that I did with that film has taught me a, a great base to go on because everything was analog. You know, we had to decide very carefully every shot, every frame, because you're burning film and that means you're burning money <laughs> and <laughs> sound was much more difficult. Uh, you, you recorded on Nagra. And it wasn't cheap and you had to transfer it and you had to retransfer it. You had to cut on a flatbed. And so it was a tedious manual process that I learned from my very first film. But those are the kind of skills that I, th- I think new film- the new young filmmakers these days never really get to experience because it's all digital and it's all very, very, very quick and fast. But I find that, 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 that because of that short film, it gave me a lot of good basis to go on. And what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Let's see. There were a few, but um, the best one would probably be, be I'm probably going to butcher this, but <laughs> I, I think I heard, I heard it from Scorsese. He, he said that if 
if you don't know that you're going to vomit on your first rough cut, then, you know, you, you're, you're not going to be on a, in a good place. <laughs> You'd rather be vomiting on your first cut rather than vomiting it on, you know, the final stages of the edit. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's the worst monkey advice you've ever received or heard? Worst one is probably I've heard something like you just need to put it out there and it'll take care of itself, that kind of thing. And, <laughs> and it's like, no, it's, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it became an exercise of, of quantity, like kind of just flood the, the world out there with stuff. I, I did try that in my early career and I, I found out that that wasn't the way to go because I had a few films that either flopped or was banned. Is because I didn't think about it. I just did it because I that kind of thing where I just put it out there and and you know you'll be fine. Uh, it's quantity, so that's not a good thing to do. Why was one of your films banned? Was it a ratings thing or? It was it was a ratings thing. Uh, well, the, Vietnam has its own censorship, it's just very very similar to China. And in the early stages, when I was working in Vietnam, I couldn't do a lot of the things that were very taboo, you know, and, and, and there wasn't really a strict rule, exact rule book on what you can do and what you can't. But if the censorship board feels that your film oversteps certain things, then uh, they have a right to ban it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh, next question. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I only have really one pursuit is, is that it's to, to pursue every story and everything that I'm attracted to that I do it for the right reason and the right reason meaning that it's, it's gotta have a basis of like, it, it's, it's worth all my all, you know, it's gotta be something where it's in, embedded in me to go for it. And, and w without any sort of materialistic reasons. And I, I think that's, that's been helping me more than anything is that being honest and, and kind of very rational about my decisions. And the, the, I think the biggest goal for me as a filmmaker is that when I, after a film that I've done, if I get to a place where I say that I did that for the right reason and, then, and that it turned out just right, then I think I, I would make every movie like that. Uh, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself when you were younger? It's okay to work at a Starbucks and write at night. <laughs> it's very okay. Uh, Which it, you can tell I didn't do that. But. <laughs> You never did that, not even when you were younger in, in LA. No, that, I mean that's my that's my advice I would give my younger self because that's that's to me that's the key to really becoming a filmmaker. From <laughs> <laughs> my experience, yeah. And then the final question is: making movies hard? It is probably one of the hardest things out there to do, but it's very much like the concept of no pain, no gain. You have to love it to the point where it's so hard, it's good. <laughs> and I think that when you get to that place, you know that you're going to succeed in this because if you're just looking at these hardships and, and all the difficulties coming at you, and it could be anything, it could be like trying to log in into Premiere or something like that, and you can't even do that. Well, you know what? You, you got to do it. <laughs> and, and those are the things that I find that there's, it's subjective, right? Everybody thinks certain things are hard and certain things are not. But to me, if it's not hard, then it's not worth doing it. Awesome. So uh, where should people go to, to watch your film? Is it, you know, website? Is it, where is it available? Blast it out. 
Fury is in Netflix a lot. It circulates sometimes because it, uh, there's different territory that shows that shows up sometimes in Europe at one. Uh, so check Netflix a lot. Amazon has some of my older stuff, I believe. But yeah, I think those are the two thing, uh, two two places to really see it. Uh, but you will get to see my newest one on either uh, Disney Plus or Hulu, wherever you're at in the world. But I believe in Europe, it's Disney Plus and Sky, and the US will be Hulu. So you'll be seeing that this summer. The Requin, I believe, I know Lionsgate and Saban is, is our distribution. And I, those are the awesome companies to be involved with. And I'm very excited that uh, they're part of this. And I believe it's going to be in streaming, but I just don't know exactly where. I know it's, on, it's going to be on Blu-ray soon. Go to the site and, and I think uh, you'll, you'll hear the latest news. And I'm getting a message here. January 28th in theaters. And on demand and digital on the 28th. Fantastic. Uh, in the US. So okay, look thank out you. for that. We'll have all the information on the show notes. And then, of course, yeah, I can't wait to see The Princess when it hits Disney Plus or, or Hulu because that sounds like an awesome movie. Although there's like almost no information about it <laughs> out. There's no synopsis. All it says is Joey King. That's yeah. it. You know, so it's, it's, the, a, the mysteriousness yeah. is like, it's exciting, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I could say she's a, she's a princess. In the, in the vein of John Wick and uh, Sleeping Beauty. So, since Liz wasn't part of the conversation, I'm just going to talk about the thing that I've been thinking about since I talked to Kiet. Well, he's an amazing person. I mean, he's so calm, so collective, and just so, like, well thought out in everything that he does. And, you know, he, like, started here, made a feature in Los Angeles, and then moved to Vietnam, right? And, like, did all these movies. And then, you know, he's in this place where, like, he had one of the biggest hits in Vietnam with Fury. You know, at the time, top grossing blockbuster in Vietnam, period, you know, to that date. So it's like, you know, that's pretty incredible. And then, you know, he's just doing his thing, making movies in Vietnam. And then Hulu and Disney just call him out of the blue, like cold call and say, hey, do you want to talk to us about making this movie The Princess? And he's like, sure. And like, you know, through this conversation, like he, t- he outlines all like what happened and how he approached and like what, how he pitched it, what materials he made, all this stuff. But the thing that we didn't really talk about was like, you know, he, he just didn't need it. Like, he didn't have this stress on him where it's like, oh, if I don't get this deal, my life is ruined. Oh, this, this, this Hulu deal doesn't happen. Like, what am I going to do for my next movie? Like, he already had another movie like that, that he's working on that he's in pre-production for or even like maybe had shot at that point. Like, he's not worried about like what his career is going to be. So, he could like go into these Hulu meetings and Disney meetings and just be like, you know, cool as a cucumber, you know? And I think that's probably one of the reasons why he ended up getting the deal and making the movie and like why like while we're you know doing this conversation he's in london doing post sound <laughs> for his disney feature and it's just like looking at this guy i'm like wow like he is living the dream so yeah pretty cool conversation liz i, I can't wait to hear what you think of it when you get a chance to listen to it but yeah that was a lot of fun it i always like to compare everything to relationships but it reminds me of like if, yeah, like if you don't need someone, you appear more attractive, right? So it's like, yeah. I can't imagine not needing Disney though. Like I can't imagine being in a world where you're not like, oh, I really hope I get this Disney job. Like that sounds wonderful. When Let's let's get to that stage in our careers. Yeah. It sounded like he just had a lot of fun. Like I asked him like, oh, was there challenges? Like blah, blah, blah. He's like, that was just like, have more money, more people, more time. It was great. I was like, oh yeah, that does sound pretty great, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh my God. Well, speaking about larger studio productions, 
This week, we have an article from Eric Cohn over at IndieWire about the trend of Sundance directors getting plucked to hire tentpole films like Marvel movies. And his suggestion is that filmmakers maybe shouldn't say yes to these offers. Eric interviews a few directors who fit this trend or references a few directors that fit this trend. They also talk a little bit about like the way that the marketplace could transform if the directors of note that come out of Sundance don't immediately go to these massive budget films. I'd be curious, Ulrich, what you thought of this article. Well, so I kind of felt like, you know, he had one good reference that actually fit his, you know, thesis, but I don't think his other references were as apt. Like the the John Watts reference of, you know, directing Cop Car and then immediately going to the Spider-Man movies, I thought was like a really good, clear what example of this, but I mean, but then he like says how gr- much he likes the Spider-Man movies. <laughs> so I'm like, well, <laughs> then is it really a bad thing? Because he made a, made a bunch of really great movies that we all love. Like I haven't seen the new one, but the other two I thought were, were pretty decent and fun. So it's like, I don't know. Is that a bad thing? And then like he, he references Ryan Coogler, but like, you know, it's like part of the, part of the article that I gleaned from it was like, what, what would these filmmakers have done? If they didn't go to make Marvel movies, like what crazy, amazing artistic films would they have made? And it's like, well, I'm pretty sure Ryan Coogler would have made Creed if he had anything he could make because he did make Creed. And that was like the project he was trying to make before he made Fruitvale Station. So I think your fucking thesis didn't really work here because like filmmakers just do what they want to do. And like, if you ask Ryan Coogler, like, is there another movie that he wanted to make more than Black Panther? I'm I'm pretty certain the answer is no. <laughs> I think if you have the chance to make Black Panther, you're going to fucking make Black Panther, right? Like, you're not going to go, oh, I'm going to make this art house movie instead. <laughs> but it, it felt like really patronizing the way he talked about filmmakers. Like, one of the arguments Eric Cohn says is like that those, these filmmakers came out of Sundance with their first features and they need more time to refine their voice. And I just think that's absurd because we spend our entire, our voice is our personality, our voice is the core of ourselves. And we've spent our entire lives. It's an evolution. We're never going to have a refined voice. Every film is an evolution of that voice. And for you to premiere a film at Sundance, you have a resume that leads you up to that point of different experiments, of different projects. I just think it's like he gives Sundance a lot of credit for discovery when we all know, though Sundance does confirm success, I wouldn't say they necessarily discover talent. They track talent. And so to say that these filmmakers need more time and need to ripen in other ways, that to me felt very patronizing. And also, sorry, I am going to go on a soapbox. What is frustrating is what about the producers, the editors, the cinematographers that then lose out on those massive paydays that then you know help pay to get food on their table for their family? Because so much of filmmaking is collaborative and having this core team that travels with you from film to film. So if that director chooses a smaller project, them and the rest of their team may be working for scale and they may have lost out on a massive opportunity that's never going to come their way again. Because I doubt that a Marvel film is going to try to poach you, you know, twice. Lightning doesn't really strike twice. Yeah. No, if you turn down Marvel after Sundance, you're probably never going to get to work for Marvel again. Right. And so, like, you know, that's my other thought. It's like, you'd be pretty dumb to like not to take the, the job because you could always make an art house movie. And I'd almost guarantee that it's going to be 1000 times easier 
to make your art house movie after you've directed a Marvel movie than it is before you directed a Marvel movie. So I, I don't really understand like what director would ever should make that choice and, and why they would make that choice. The other thing, his reference of Taika Waititi is like completely bazonkers because... It doesn't prove his point at all. I'm pretty sure before he made Eagle vs. Shark that he got nominated or even won the best short film Oscar before that. <laughs> So he'd already been a proven entity. He was already, you know, like hot shit, you know, like, so I don't think that really works. And then the other thing is that I would argue that Taika Waititi did do what this guy is, is saying he, he should do because he made like four other indie features yeah. before making Thor, th at least three, if not four. So it's like, yeah, dude, like, I don't know, this, this hypothesis is not really proven in your article very well, but you know, I don't yes. know. The, the thing I do agree with Eric Cohen on is, you know, the mid-tier budget, like the mid-tier drama is gone from the marketplace, right? And the movies that like, you know, David Lynch or Cronenberg or like in these like 90s, really weird, lovely art house films are not seeing the same success that they used to be used to have in like the 80s and the 90s. So if he's suggesting or implying that the directors need to force us to kind of refocus attention to those type of films. I get it. But you can't really play with people's pocketbooks with this argument. Like, I just think that's really a bad idea. And I wanted to shout out Rebecca Green, founder of DearProducer.com, hero, <laughs> kind of like a boss of mine. She tweeted at Eric and said, it's not about a big payout. It's about making a living wage, which is not possible making indie films. We usually work for years for no pay to get the first film made. Then it could take one to three years, also unpaid, to raise money for the next. Could you work five plus years without a paycheck? So I just think that she summed it up really well in the sense of like, yeah. it's an economic sacrifice that we're being asked to make when our content is not being properly evaluated, like globally. So to encourage people to say no to a paycheck that could really help a lot of them and their crew, it just seems really like bad advice. Yeah, I second that. And, and what was that That director, Darren Aronofsky? He made that movie after making Noah. What was that movie called? I want to call, say it's Muse, but it's definitely not called Muse. It's called something else. But like that Wait, is Mother? that movie. Mother. That is that movie <laughs> that people that you're talking about. That's like a, what, a $20 million, $30 million, like weird drama. So bizarre. I love it. I love Mother. Bizarre. <laughs> yeah. <so> weird. <laughs> That's the movie. And so, like, he made all these big budget movies or whatever, and then he came back and he, he made Mother, you know? And so, like, the directors can do that, you know, and those movies can exist, but it definitely has to be director-driven in order for that to happen, you know? So and let them do what they want. Let us do what we want, Eric. So, Liz, I am dying to know, what is this question you want to ask me? What is it? I want to answer if I can. What, what do you got? Well, because you make genre films, and I'm writing yeah. a, a horror feature, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out what are the rules of the world? What are the mat? The ma it's ours is a witch film. So it's like, what are the magic systems? But for you, it could be that or like the rules of the parallel universe or how do people cross over to the alternate dimension? How do you figure out the rules of the world without losing relatability, like without turning it into a film that feels like it could never happen to the audience member? And I'm just mm -hmm. curious when you create these rules, because you do a lot of like zany paradigms in your films. <laughs> so like, are you thinking about relatability when you write those things? Yeah. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the rules of the portal and how the portal works and why the portal, not necessarily why it exists, but like 
how it functions and how it can be used and how it interacts and like like where do you go when you go to the other side of the portal like what what world are we going into and so in my mind it was always like a very specific dimension that one singular dimension that the portal took Jake to you know and that like wherever he opened that portal to you know in space in geography in space time that that would be that world's alternate world, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, when he goes through the portal in the pawn shop, it's like he ends up in a Chinese restaurant, or it was it was written as a Chinese restaurant, ended up just being a restaurant. But it was just like, because in this universe, that pawn shop was never a pawn shop. It was a restaurant, you know? And so, like, it was all about, like, you know, if you opened the portal up in the living room of 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 his house, then it would be the living room of his alternate house, but it's not like, it's not like, oh, where they move to a bigger house and then it o- opens up where they are. It's like, no, he just, they just happen to like remodel their house that they lived in. And so it's just the bigger, nicer, fancier version of the same house in the same space. So it was like tied to space, you know? Yeah. And then there was a whole thing about like how it closes and like after a certain amount of time, it would close after you pass through it, you know? And so that, was like one of the rules, but it, it was something that we never said. It was, we never had a line in the movie where it's like, Jake's like, oh, so it closes after seven seconds. Good to know. I'll write that down. You know, like we never had that line to clearly communicate it to the, uh, the audience. We just tried to make it clear by showing it a few times. And like, you know, he counts down at one point, like, like, you know, whatever, one, two, three, four. So like you can see him counting the seconds to, to when it closes. So you can sort of get that information. That was a big problem, like in the edit. Like, we, there was a lot of the team was like really concerned that people wouldn't understand that it closes on its own and that they would think that he closed it on Alt Jake at the end, that Alt Jake closes the portal on Jake, you know, on purpose. And, you know, it's like to me, it's like, well, we did our best. Like, we, we showed it happening. We set up the rules. We're true to the rules throughout the movie. Like, it, it happens the same way every time it, it closes, every time that portal is interacted with, it behaves the same way. And so we kind of just felt that was enough. But, you know, I think like, like, I think it starts with you understanding your rules and like having like a clear understanding of how everything works. And then whether or not it's going to be in the movie in a clear way or just in a subtle way, I think that's up to you as a filmmaker. But like in terms of relatability, I think that's the core of the question that you haven't addressed yet, which is like, are you ever worrying about leaving audience members creating a world where they don't see themselves because this massive, zany, bizarre, otherworldly thing happens in the mm. film. Like, do you worry that that device that you're using will make your film unrelatable? I guess for me, like we, we try to make it seem as plausible as possible. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very unplausible thing. It's like very impossible. So the way we wrote the characters' reactions to the portal, it was in a way to try to ground it into reality. So like, you know, Jake has this one reaction where he's just like, is obsessed with it, thinks it's the greatest thing ever. Like he's trying to think of how he can use it to his own advantage and then like how it can be like something where he can profit from. And then, you know, his wife, Chris is like, you know, I think coming at it more pragmatically, like we don't know what's going on here. This is like a bizarre thing. Like we don't know anything about it. We can't possibly know anything about it because we're not scientists. And this is like something that we don't know anything about. So, like, let's be very cautious and very careful with it, you know? And so, I feel like through the characters' reactions, like, that was, like, where we were trying to create the relate- relatability to, like, 
you know, if this actually happened to somebody, like how would they react in a reasonable way? I think the issue that we came up to is like that Jake doesn't react to it in a, in a reasonable way. He's not rational. And that's the point. And so we, I guess we were a little concerned that like people would be like, you know, not buying into that so much. But I feel like through Jake's Ed's performance and through the way that we told the story and showed the two worlds that hopefully we did a good enough job to make it seem realistic as possible. You know, that's interesting. The reactions thing is interesting. I mean, our thing is witchcraft. So we're like, how do we create a ceremony that's not like a Buffy thing where there's mm. like spells and potions and like someone in like with demon ears shows up or something? Like, how do you create a magic system that doesn't make you feel completely alienated? Like, I, we talked about like the witch and how, or I, mm-hmm. I just call it the witch though. I just call it the witch too. Okay, I cool. was actually just about to bring it up. <laughs> and how. You never really see the magic take place on screen. You just see the after effects. And I think it's because it looks silly for someone to chant things in Latin and put things in a cauldron. It's like these caricatured representation of what magic is. So we've been talking a lot about how you represent magic or otherworldly elements in a way that still feel grounded. But you have, I mean, with Strange Thing, you also had kind of like a portal too. And it's, with Speed of Life, we had the wormhole, and that always became like a question. But because it, at its core, was a relationship film, I didn't worry about it too much. But when the film's structure is based off of something otherworldly, how do you make it not look silly? How do you know? Yeah, I, I think like, like I love like this, this approach that, you know, a lot of these superhero movies have been taking to the content to like make it feel grounded, you know, like w- with Batman and the Joker and like, you know, like the Joker's got the makeup, he's got the, the the suit, he's got all the stuff that like is Joker. But like you know, the way that they did the the mask was like, oh, like it could be scars, you know, or is a scar that he maybe self inflicted at some point, or who knows. And then like the way that the paint is on, it's like very like like he did it like in a very haphazard way. It's not neat, it's not tidy, it's like really sloppy, you know. And I think those sort of things is like what helps it seem grounded, you know? So like, if you're talking about your magic, you know, like the way I've like, I, I can't remember what I saw it in, but like there was some like seance scene or some sort of magical scene in something re- recently where, you know, like you just make it seem really dark, you know, and like mysterious and like you don't see everything, yeah. you know, like you, like not, it's not all super clear. It's not brightly lit, you know, like it's, it, there is a lot of mystery and unknown to it. And like, you know, if you see like, oh, they're putting a potion together, it's like using like this part or like maybe it's an eyeball, maybe it's a hand, you know, but like you don't really see, you know, and, it, and it's not cartoonish in the way that you like think of a witch like seen, you know, in a cartoon or in like an older movie. It's like very much, I don't know, done matter of factly. And then I think it all comes down to the performances, like the more that like your actors like are bought into this and that they're not hamming it up and they're taking it dead serious. Like it's like fucking dead serious. Like in your seance scene, it's like dead serious. You know, anything where magic's happening. It's like, I think that makes it grounds it reality. Like the, the seriousness and the, the way that your actors portray the characters, you know, to, to me yeah. at least. No, that's, know? I mean, that's really helpful. And also what's interesting about witchcraft is that like, as I mentioned before, I met witches who people who call themselves practicing witches. So it's kind of like it's not this completely fictional thing. And so it's 
there's like uh, being respectful to the practice that's active, but also drawing from like historical horror references in what you do to like evoke a certain ambiance in the film. So I think I'm going to call upon some witch experts and see yeah. if they have some advice because I know it. I mean, Amy and I were talking, we're co-writing the script and we're like, well, we think candles are involved and we know we've had access to grimoires. So we've seen some spells, but until you like really witness it, I, I think it's still going to be this very foreign, silly thing to me. So, yeah, I mean, it also depends on like how you want it to be depicted as a filmmaker, like. Like, if they do a spell, like, do you want to see, like, a little bit of light or, like, oh, there's the magic. You actually see no. it. Or is it just, like, in the air and, like, you don't see it at all physically, but it just, like, you see what it does, but you don't yeah. see that it actually exists, right. you know? Our, we have just very, yeah. Or if anyone has any references for great witch movies, I mean, obviously, there's The Wretched, which um, is a great reference. But any additional ones, please send them our way. And you can do that by sending us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, at YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And make sure to check out, we are big fans of the International Screenwriters Association. The ISA is an organization designed to help connect writers with filmmakers through publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals consultation courses contests they also have a top 25 writers list head on over to networkisa.org check them out finally thanks to lee van kiet for coming on the show sam anaya from katrina one pr for setting this up our amazing producer eric toms for being wonderful our equally fantastic editor jeff vrymoot for doing the editing thanks to everyone for listening and talk to y'all next week Isn't that Screenwriting? International Screenwriting Association? Or is it Network ISA? Oh, no, you're right. International Screenwriters Association. Um, we really... <laughs> <laughs> We've been saying it wrong for, no, for weeks and I, months. I think <laughs> I've been saying it wrong. I think you've been saying it right every single time. Um, 